Welcome to The Last Supper, your weekly podcast about art in Asia. I'm your host, Oscar Venhuis. Every weekend, I sit down and release an episode bringing new perspectives and engaging dialogues with emerging and established artists, galleries, curators and collectors in Asia. Learn more about art in Asia with Christie's Education in-person and virtual art courses, gallery visits and webinars. Visit Christie's Education website and enter all in capital letters Last Supper 15 to enjoy a 15% discount. The website link and discount code for Christie's Education can also be found in the description of this podcast. In today's episode, architect-turned-artist Justin Hue sat down with me to talk about his journey into art that started in Africa, how globalization is shaping cities in Africa and the rest of the world, the impact of colonialism and appropriation, the erosion of Hong Kong's history and the semiosis of imagery. Hello Justin, welcome to my place and thanks for stopping by. How are you today? Good. You are an architect by training. So how did your journey begin into art? And one of your first projects was in Africa, mm-hmm. where I would like to begin. Can you speak more how your art journey unfolded? I'm an architect and I worked a few years in the architecture world. And it's always important for me, regardless of what I do, to have space outside of my job to look at things that I was very interested in. So I had a bit of time in between jobs that I wanted to explore this topic that I found very interesting, which was what the Chinese were building all throughout the African continent. This was in 2014, when I don't think it was as big of a topic then, but now you you hear a lot about it even more so. But to me, I was interested in many different topics that I wasn't doing at work. So one of them was how globalization is shaping our cities, the development. A lot of our cities and and places are now shaped by things near and far. And so I got a grant to go and basically took a one-way flight to Tanzania to onto a continent that I've never set foot on and spent almost a year running around different countries, trespassing into construction sites, really seeing what the Chinese were building and seeing how that was shaping cities throughout the African continent. At that time, I wasn't considering myself as an artist. I wasn't going there with the purpose of creating art. It was more or less a research project, but really a way for me to satisfy my curiosities into topics that you know I otherwise wouldn't look at in my job. And then I realized throughout my trip, I was never trained as a researcher. I didn't know how to do research, but then my the images that I photographed that came out of it to me were was what was convincing to me. It was what I found most interesting and what people thought was most interesting about the project. So you could say that photography became a primary medium in which I looked at things through through my images. And so nowadays I consider myself more as an artist. And, and then back then, even though I wasn't doing art in the traditional sense, it made me realize that all this time I'm actually quite that I have been doing art all this time. It's just that I thought at that time it was research. Almost a year in Africa, ended up going to India for three months and then ended up in Hong Kong. I love being in Asia and that's why I ended up in Hong Kong for around nine years after I was in Africa. That's really fascinating. 
And one thing that stands out for me, because you appear to emphasize this, is that you became an artist, which means that you make a distinction between before you were an artist and now that you have become an artist. What can you tell me about this transition? Initially, I'm not sure if it's artist, art, you know, how to call it. It's essentially whatever you do to satisfy your curiosity about the world. And then whatever you create out of that curiosity, if that's considered art, then perhaps it is art. That's something not for me to define. But initially I thought because it was more of a research project, what I had to deliver perhaps was less about art and more about documentation, like documenting what I found on site. Uh, you could call that journalism as well, perhaps you know, reporting what was happening on the ground, even though I wasn't a journalist nor a researcher in the traditional sense. But I started to realize that actually, even though I was in Africa to do research, I realized that actually what I had encountered due to my background and my identity also shaped what I found. Primarily being that there's a lot of interest now in this topic, but if say you're a journalist from the West and say you are Caucasian, chances are it's very difficult to be able to nowadays literally walk into any construction site in throughout Africa and just be able to like take photos. Somehow I am Chinese ethnicity, but because I can also speak English and Chinese, my identity as an Asian American really allowed me to enter into, into any construction site without any skepticism. The Chinese people who were working there thought I was just one of the managers there and would not treat me with any skepticism. And then the local workers would either think I am you know, one of their managers. But then when they started to realize that my English was so good, because most Chinese people working in Africa cannot speak English, that allowed me to also communicate and speak with the local workers who were from Africa. So it was almost as if my identity as an Asian American, my body was, a, was empowered and became a bridge between the Africans and the Chinese. And so this project was in a way I didn't realize this until I went, was the perfect project for me to be able to bridge both sides and to, to, it gave me access that otherwise I wouldn't have before. And that was what made me realize perhaps this is also more of an art project. And then the projects that followed afterwards in Hong Kong and elsewhere, I, I start to think more carefully about how my identity and my biography and my background then shapes the findings on the ground and how, how what I create is obviously coming from not just what I find on the ground, but also through my identity and my, and my background. Of course, we'll be talking about your work in a minute, but I'm curious to hear more about your research experience. You said that you were initially not sure how to conduct this properly. Yes. Did I hear that correctly? And what can you say about this? Because in architecture school, they don't really train you how to do empirical research. It's very much... But then I think I also realized research can come in many different ways. Uh, it's not like necessarily there, there's quantitative research and then there's qualitative research as well. And I read a lot of books about anthropology, how to do field work before I went to Africa, just to understand and realize that actually in the end, there is no one way to necessarily do research. And maybe what I thought was research, such as, you know, gathering data somewhere and then creating a conclusion from it. There's only one form of research. And perhaps images, even if there may not have been a, meth a strict methodology behind how I created these images, 
was in a way a form of research, but that, that could tell you a lot that other forms of research wouldn't be able to tell you about. And I, I would get invited to a lot of these conferences about China and Africa, and it was almost as if the images themselves, because you know there's not many photographers who look into this topic, they told you a lot of different narratives that otherwise other forms of research like writing or numbers wouldn't be able to tell you about. And that's when I realized that images are powerful. They, they can tell you so much that go way beyond any kind of other research. People can see some of your work on your website and I will post the link on my blog and some images of your work as well. But when you decided to go to Zambia and Tanzania, you went there with a certain expectation. What were some of the insights and learnings of this experience when you were there for one year? I could spend hours talking about what I found because I did spend a lot of time there. But perhaps there were a few key realizations that, that really shaped me to be who I am today that came from, of course, the stories that I encountered one, I think, is a developing a big mistrust in how stories are reported, especially in the news and the media. Just like you said, before I landed in Africa, I had many assumptions about this topic as well. And But then once you're there and on the ground and you're seeing what's actually happening and talking to people who otherwise who may have a very different opinion about things, you start to realize the beauty of the complexity of, of these issues and the nuance of them, of it, and the importance perhaps as artists to develop other perspectives and more nuanced perspectives about other things, given how polarized and filtered information is today, especially with social media and, and, and the news. So then I think that's why I try very hard on the ground or in my projects to really focus on not to be sucked into these broader political debates or issues, not that they're not important. It's just that they only offer a very limited and filtered view of actually what's happening and to then pursue other narratives that I found just as interesting or more interesting than what was being reported. So that's one. Um, two is really, it was almost like the construction site throughout African continent was this picture of globalization at work on a very impersonal scale. You would see people coming from all walks of life, backgrounds, local Zambians, Ugandans, interact with Chinese who moved from Sichuan and elsewhere in China, not speaking each other's language, but having but required to work together to you know build a highway or to construct a tower. I think that was just so fascinating to see how global things are today. You know, just because it's very much simplified in the news, just because the Chinese are building a skyscraper in say Tanzania, it does not mean that it's just Chinese because Maybe the designer is European, the materials are coming from Europe or China, and then the funding might be Chinese, but then partially funded by the local pension fund. There's, there's, every project is so complex and so interconnected with different parts of the world that it's very, it would be too simplistic to say that this building or this project is strictly Chinese or African or, or something else. And I think this is the nuance that a lot of media overlook is just how complex our cities are and, and how interconnected they are to different places. Yeah. And, and also just the notion that this is perhaps more specific to the African continent because a lot of the continent was colonialized by the West, you know, for centuries. Uh, there's a history in which a lot of what is built 
throughout the African continent is foreign in nature. A lot of cities were imported ideologies from the West and so on. Even today, there seems to be a big mismatch between what is often built and what is actually needed for the local people. There's always a separation. And so I feel like in, at least in many of the cities I've been in, there's a strong culture of appropriation that happens where people will take something that is foreign in nature, whether it's a colonial master plan or say a Chinese project and then reappropriate it for their own social needs. Like a parking lot that was meant to be designed for cars might then be transformed into a uh, informal outdoor shopping market, a market for, for people. So, you know, that separation between what it's intended for and how people actually use it is a cultural appropriation that I find very interesting throughout Africa and something that keeps this culture of something that keeps reinventing itself is what I would argue defines the identity of what an African city is in very broad terms, <laughs> which, yeah. What's the appropriation that you were talking about? How did that manifest itself? Or how do they apply appropriation? And what are some of the examples that you observed when you were in Africa? So I was just going to add something to that before is that one question I would ask a lot of local Zambians or Tanzanians, Africans, what constitutes, say, Zambian architecture? What constitutes Ugandan architecture? What does that look like? I never got a single reply, like what that would look like. And I think, and then now you have a lot of people who are, you know, if you ask them, oh, what kind of house do you want to build for yourself? They will say, oh, I want something that looks like a Roman villa or something. And I think this condition is not strictly unique to just Africa. I mean, you see this in China and elsewhere as well. It's not necessarily the lack of local identity as it is that for, for many centuries, a lot of these places throughout the African continent was colonialized and therefore their local identity in the form of architecture or urban planning, or it has been completely wiped out. So therefore they have nothing to rely on, but these other references that like say a, a Roman villa <laughs> or, or something else. So this lack of local identity due to its colonial history is what then creates this culture of reappropriation that you take something that's foreign in nature and then you turn it into yourself. And then to answer the question, what is that appropriation? You see it very vibrantly, like towards the end of my trip, I would say for myself as an observer that what makes something African perhaps, or Zambian or Ugandan is not so much a style or a typology that is unique to that place as it is more about there's this culture that is of people who try to reappropriate something that is not necessarily designed for them, but then they turn it into themselves. And that culture is not necessarily a formal thing or a physical thing. It's it's the culture in which keeps cities vibrant and alive because of that separation. But then if, you know, there's a lot of criticism right now in these cities where uh, say hawkers, right? Hawkers are famous for turning something that like a, a public sidewalk into a, a market, right? If urban zoning plans remove this culture of reappropriation from happening, then that really kills the soul of a city because that is what def to me defines what a modern, say Zambian city looks like or is what makes it unique and interesting to me. Which I think is quite similar to the experience in mainland China, where on the one hand, you have a lot of planning, and at the same time, you see, you have these seemingly random shops and hawkers appearing. Mm -hmm. In Hong Kong, where we are right now, that used to happen, but new policies have changed that somewhat in Hong Kong. 
this spontaneity of local shops does make a place really vibrant, which for me is what makes Africa, and I've only been to the northern part, and Southeast Asia so charming and, and really interesting. So the places like Zambia and Tanzania, I've never been there, but I can imagine in terms of street life, it may be quite similar to, let's say, the Philippines, Thailand, Indonesia, or even Vietnam. Whereas in Europe, this has kind of disappeared to a certain extent by the kind of overplanning that has happened over the last few decades. Perhaps you could say that what you develop and design in Europe, if you import those concepts or ideologies to a place like Zambia or China, right? Formally, it might be that it could be a carbon copy, right? In China, or China, you'll see Western villages, carbon copies of Western villages, Eiffel Towers everywhere. But that doesn't mean that the culture or, or the dynamic or the activities that take place is the same. And that to me is what's interesting is, right, if you have an Eiffel Tower in somewhere in China, how do people treat it? How do people use it? It's completely different. But there's also another thing is this proliferation of perhaps of and that's this is not unique to Africa, but also throughout China is these generic spaces, perhaps like corporate spaces, offices, economic zones, infrastructure ports. There's this, there's, there's this breed of very global kind of spaces that you find popping up everywhere that is being developed throughout Africa, throughout China, that perhaps reflects the increasingly connected world that we live in now. This may change with what's happening right now geopolitically, but I find it interesting that the same kind of Starbucks coffee shop that you find in China, Beijing, could be this could be similar elsewhere. This corporatization of space, if you will, or neo-capitalism happening. I'm not sure how to exp express it, but it's something that you see a lot. You know, when when people ask, okay, what what are the Chinese building throughout Africa and what does it look like? does it look like the cities that you find throughout Beijing and Shanghai? And I, I would argue not really because it's, the context is completely different. But there is some kind of universality of, that's not just unique to Africa, but that you find just proliferating, you know, satellite towns, uh, gated communities, airports that really feel like could be everywhere and nowhere. You know, there's a, there's a lot of cities in China that, are, that were just developed in just a matter of years. But because they're so new and they were just de developed so instantaneously, it's very hard to define exactly what they are, how people use them, and how to even identify yourself. It's almost like they are cities of amnesia with no history, no memory, and therefore you end up importing other identities into these spaces, which I think is a very common Chinese condition, but something that you also see anywhere. And what you described about globalization of places I experienced recently as well. I was on my first trip after the pandemic to Hokkaido in Japan and I was sitting in a coffee shop with a few friends and I said to them that if I would just look at the shop and the street outside, I could be anywhere in the world, New York, Tokyo, Paris, London or Sydney. The environment was a typical urban landscape. The interior of the coffee shop was kind of modern looking, uh, like any other coffee shop in a city. And I also remember that I had one trip 
for business and would fly to several cities in a week, but would stay in the same hotel. And I would wake up not knowing which city I was because the hotel room looks exactly identical. Especially if it's like a Marriott <laughs> network, right? You know, I mean, it, 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 you get a day, I have corporate standards that apply across different regions. And so it makes sense. I think it's globalization in a way. And I think in my images, then if you if you see my images of about Africa, it's almost like the you know I've taken thousands of images, but then the images that I end up showing, perhaps they're more like questions than documentation. They're not really trying to show you exactly what's being built or where it is exactly, but like a concrete pillar is always going to be a concrete pillar. There's something very universal about it, sticking out of the ground, that points to a more universal or global condition. That is not just strictly African or Chinese. It's um, more global condition that we're witnessing. You know, going back to say the art and images, I do think a lot about that too. Right? Initially, maybe my images that I selected before were more descriptive, really showing you exactly what was happening on the ground. But nowadays, I find that the images that are that ask questions more than they tell you what's happening are more interesting to me and. Perhaps reflects my direction more into artistic ways of art-driven ways of seeing rather than, say, a more journalistic point of view. I have a small favor to ask that will make a big impact. The Last Supper is offered to you at zero cost, and if you like the show about art in Asia, give this podcast a star rating or subscribe to this podcast channel. Many thanks, and let's continue. Now let's talk more about your work. So we are looking at two images on my screen. The picture at the bottom is one of Hong Kong, and the picture just above that could be in Hong Kong as well, but it is not. When I go to a city in China, it really looks like the images you have taken in Africa, and I was really taken aback by that. I'm not sure if the placement of the images were done on purpose, like or that. Or even the first image, which I know no one can see, but the image of uh, it looks like a it almost could pass off as a American suburb from the 1960s. This very modular, repeatable formula that you know you see all throughout the American suburb. I think if you look at this image, and I didn't tell you that this was in Zambia, you may not have guessed that it was actually in Zambia. I'm perhaps I'm very interested in the modes of production. When I, when I speak of that, about that, what I mean is not simply design as we think about it, as it is more about what are the formulas that govern urban production or spatial production today that are really quite global in scale. You know, what does that point to when we think about cities and when we think about the spaces that we inhabit? How does that shape us with these so-called generic spaces? Perhaps there is this need to create an identity or to to fill in that void of or a lack of identity or memory that we find in our cities. There's a lot of Chinese photography, contemporary photography that I love, that reflect the kind of the banality of modern Chinese living due to just how fast these cities have grown and how they haven't been able to absorb the identity or or even just the fact that a lot of these cities are are for investment for speculation. And maybe not so much for actually living. Yeah, this separation between living and identity versus like the modes of production that we 
that we resort to, but don't really think about. I think that that I find very fascinating, and I try to also capture in my images. So maybe that perhaps that's why these images don't really aren't really specific to one place, but point to a broader human condition that we find today. When you look at Hong Kong as an urban city, you see its heritage is disappearing really fast, including century-old temples. So, what's your view on the intersection of development? And the modernization while preserving cultural heritage. I try not to veer on the whole nostalgia sentiment necessary. I don't think we should preserve buildings necessary because of nostalgia. I mean, I mean, in the sixties and fifties, and there was a whole movement to eradicate old buildings. And at that time, it was this ideology that the old was a social ill, and we had to. Reform and develop new ways of living, and that, in a way, was the justification for eradicating a lot of old buildings, especially in New York,、uh, in Europe. So you know, Corb and all these architects had these plans to demolish like half of Paris for that very reason. And then now you have, I think, in move,、uh, especially now in Hong Kong, this very strong movement to protect heritage、uh, buildings of heritage value. But I also think it may be because one, the pace of change in Hong Kong is is very quick. So perhaps that feels a sense of urgency about what we're losing as much as what we're developing. But also perhaps because it's tied to the questions of what is Hong Kong identity. A lot of these buildings that are being torn down, like Tang Laos, I don't think people really care right about the utility of the building, as it is more about that it reflects. Something about their identity that is being eroded, and so I think it's a more ideological, political, and personal issue towards heritage. It's it, but then you know, there's a lot of debate in the architecture world. You know, why? Just because you preserve something doesn't mean much if it if the use and the program is different, or if it's no longer what it was. Intended for in the beginning, and then it just becomes a mummified artifact, like Rome, where the center of Rome is just basically this city that is frozen in time and will never change because it's completely preserved. And then you have arguments also why you know heritage protection isn't always necessarily a good thing either, right? Because what keeps cities alive, like this cultural reappropriation that we talked about, is as important as the. Structure itself, and if you don't allow these spaces to evolve and to adapt to what's happening, then they simply become just monuments and no longer the kind. They don't facilitate the liveliness, the vibrancy of what a city can become. You make an interesting point that if buildings become monuments that the general audience are unable to use, what then is the purpose of keeping the structure? When we talk about the Tong Laos in Hong Kong, and for those people who are not familiar with Hong Kong, these are the old concrete residential blocks that have no lift and are typically walk-ups of several floors. We could, and they are, being demolished and to make place for new structures that are safer and probably more convenient. But a large aspect of those Tong Laos is that when you demolish it, you're not just breaking down the structure of it or the building, but an entire community. Right. How do you preserve that when you take down a building? It's a it's a question I can't. I, I also think a lot about, but 
don't really have a clear answer to is the issue of gentrification. You're right, just because you preserve the buildings. If the community that used to, like a lot of artists or, you know, who used to live there can no longer afford being there because of rising property values, then what good is a tonglao if it's not being used for a tonglao? And indeed, you're right. It, I think as the, the discussion about preservation is as much about hopefully about the people, right? The activities, the culture that resides in that area, even though of course culture is always evolving and changing and people are always moving in and out. It has to be part of the discussion. It's not just like we need to just preserve these buildings for the building's sake, because then um, you're missing out a big picture of what makes a city successful. It also becomes maybe harder to develop these strong and sustainable communities in cities. I have lived in Hong Kong on and off for probably about 20 years. And in between, I have moved to several different cities and places. And the reason why I mentioned this is that from the original group in Hong Kong, who I knew 20 years ago, there are maybe only three, four people who are still in Hong Kong. Once in a while, I do reflect on that of who will still be here in Hong Kong um, in the next maybe 10, 20 years. Even if I want to maintain my network or community, people nowadays, especially in Hong Kong, appear to be very transient global migrants. Indeed, Hong, I mean, maybe you could argue that Hong Kong is a city that is so driven by migration. You know, most people from Hong Kong are not actually from here originally. And a lot of people are always coming in and out. So you could argue perhaps that that is what makes Hong Kong, Hong Kong is this history of movement and transitory nature. And maybe that's, but you could also argue that maybe things are meant to be destroyed. Things are meant to be disappeared, that they're not meant to last forever. That's what, there, there's a particular beauty to that as well. I'm not advocating, of course, for anything, but I think that you see this a lot in, in a lot of the art in Hong Kong, in, in a lot of the topics that we, we investigate. In my project about my grandmother, I'm looking at three different time periods, uh, World War II, colonial Hong Kong, and then you have the Hanover, and then you have 2014, you know, the protests, and now uh, Hong Kong as we understand it today. These are three, it's almost as if these are three very different cities. Of course, it's one city, but if you look at it, it's almost like a triptych of two, three very different places of three very different times. And due to the evolution and the change that's happened so much, and even before Hong Kong became a colony, because my work focuses a lot on the north of Hong Kong, you realize there's so many other histories that exists in this area that are not perhaps overlooked due to our colonial history. For example, before the British came, you had the Hakkas who came and established villages, especially in the north, who then fought many skirmishes with the Cantonese villages. But this history perhaps is overlooked due to our shorter history as defined by the British. That also then reflects the very transitory nature of, of Hong Kong itself that people were always moving in and out even before Hong Kong became a colony. Now, let's talk about your project, Searching for Poon. Just now, you briefly alluded to this project. And let's begin with, why did you choose this specific title? So she, my grandmother, who is around 86 now, uh, has pretty much forgotten all her memories. Uh, her, her memory now is so bad that she probably only remembers my dad and perhaps just a few things, but I don't even know if Hong Kong exists for in her memory anymore 
due to her the deterioration of her mental condition. She was born in the village in uh, near Guangzhou, and then she came to Hong Kong with pretty much nothing. Built her life here, had four sons, and then all four sons moved to the United States, and that's why I was born in the United States. But with a lot of links to my grandmother. So this project, searching for Poon, is trying to use photography and found documents that she's left behind and photographs to. Search for her memories in a way to reconstruct her past to try to understand her life through the absence of her memories. So photography or art becomes more of a way to search for her past to reconstruct her memory and to understand how I ended up in the United States and also that the her her biography or her story then becomes a broader picture about Hong Kong through the three different time periods that I I look into. As well as the nature of memory itself, I'm working on a zine. So the the first part is a zine, the medium of a zine that combines found documents, photographs, her photographs, my photographs, and my letters, writings, and that together, which I'm still working on, is structured very much based on not just present time of me searching for her memory, but also the nature of memory itself. They say that when you begin to forget, you tend to forget. The most more present memories, and that as you're as you forget more and more, so you you you're kind of like traveling back in time. You you only remember the earliest memories. So the nature of memory and how we remember and how I search for the memories is very much what structures this project that I'm still working on right now. But it has a lot to do with memory, the nature of memory, whether they're fiction or real, um, as well as my grandmother's story, which I think is very. Typical for people of that generation who crossed into Hong Kong, built a life here, and、uh, witnessed the dramatic change that Hong Kong has gone through in the past seventy, eighty years. Talk about change. Hong Kong has gone through a radical transformation, and the question that has always been on the surface that has now reemerged: What makes Hong Kong Hong Kong? What is Hong Kong's identity? What to you is Hong Kong? What does Hong Kong mean to you? That's a very, to me, Hong Kong feels like home in the sense that even though I was born in the United States, I spent a lot of time in Hong Kong in different time periods, and even though I am based in New York now, for the most part, I still feel like Hong Kong is really where my home is. And it's not that necessarily that I've spent that much time here, but I just feel like culturally, perhaps. Or identity-wise, I feel more connected here than in the United States. But it, this is a question that I also look a lot in my New Territories project,、uh, the photo book that I published, where an、uh, argument that I make is that Hong Kong's identity is very territorial in nature, by nature of its colonial history. So, before the British came here, there was no such thing as Hong Kong, right? It was just a part of Guangdong, and therefore Hong Kong. If you consider new territories, the border, you know, Hong Kong does not exist without this border in the north that is being carved out to establish Hong Kong as a colony. So, without this border, there isn't really a Hong Kong. So we can't really talk about Hong Kong and identity without really considering the implications of land and territory in, in the discussion. I think in doing this project, you realize actually our identity is very colonial in nature, and then. 
by spending so much time in the north and wandering around and discovering other histories that exist before that and as well as just the different nature of Hong Kong. I mean, when you think about all the images that are produced about that represent Hong Kong and that proliferate out there, mostly you think about skyscrapers, towers, density, but the reality is most of Hong Kong is rural country parks, not the urban jungle that you typically would think about Hong Kong. And then you ask yourself that question, why is there such a big gap of representation between the way Hong Kong's seen and represented versus the way Hong Kong actually is? And then you start to realize perhaps the way we see Hong Kong is still very much colonial in nature, that we fix ourselves, our gaze at Hong Kong Island, which is the center of British Hong Kong. And in only like perhaps the less than 20% of urban areas, rather than fixing ourselves on the other parts of Hong Kong. That is a part of Hong Kong, but perhaps it's not less represented. So this, the intention of this project was to see, are there other ways to see Hong Kong beyond the colonial lens by looking at Hong Kong from the perspective of the North, which is changing a lot right now. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but I think it's an important one is realizing first and foremost that the concept of Hong Kong is very colonial nature. It comes from this border that is carved out from the North and therefore... But, but then also because of that, the question of land and, and who owns land and the nature of land is, is, you could argue, is really at the center of many of the social issues that drive Hong Kong today, that exist today. So you can't really talk about Hong Kong without talking about land and the issues that are created from the issues about surrounding like land itself. But would you say this is unique to Hong Kong? Because disputes about land ownership happens everywhere in the world. Yes, I definitely, right? In America, right? All of that technically belong to the Native Americans, you know, and, and, and therefore you could say America is kind of like a colony in a way. It was stolen from the Native Americans, just like how the British through the Opium War basically claimed Hong Kong as it is a colony of, its, of their own, which then complicates, right, the very original question, who owns the land? Is it the people who used to reside there before, the indigenous people? Is it the British? So if you could argue that the Hong Kong government is, was a, Brit a colonial government, than truly who owns the land. And I think that is really the, it drives a lot of the social issues that we talk about today. Um, and a topic that I find very interesting is that, you know, if you, you look at the new territories, if you go up there a lot, the landscape feels very different by nature because of the fact that a lot of indigenous villagers can build up to three stories of building on their own plot of land. And this came from a, a skirmish between the British and the villagers. And when, you know, when the British claimed the new territories, they fought for six days. And as a concession to the villagers who lost that war, they gave them the right to build housing on their own land, which then defines the landscape as we understand it today in the, in the North. I think that with the Northern metropolis and the development about uh, of like what land should be developed to, you know, and, and, and where we should build and, whose land should we take from, you know, that that is something that's very complicated and is driving a lot of the issues that we see. For those people who are not familiar with Hong Kong, when we talk about the new territories, this is the northern part of Hong Kong that borders with mainland China. Do you happen to know why it is called new territories? Because it's in fact quite old. So I'm, I'm not so I'm not sure who your, uh, your listeners are. So apologies for those who are not actually from Hong Kong. And... Yeah, so so it's it, I, I love Hong Kong history. I love the I love history in general. So I find it very interesting that so Hong Kong you have three 
you can divide Hong Kong into three regions. You have Hong Kong Island and then Kowloon and then new territories, which were, it's basically the British colony being Hong Kong. The colony was expanded over three different times and that defines Hong Kong as we understand it today. So the new territories is the, is the newest acquisition of Hong Kong's British colonial territory, uh, which also cons- constitutes 86% of Hong Kong's land, which people tend to re- forget, I think, or not realize is that actually the new territories is the biggest part of Hong Kong's uh, land. You know, Hong Kong Island is only 7% of Hong Kong's entire land mass. And so it is a massive acquisition and was established to create a defensive buffer between British Hong Kong and China at that time. It was mostly strategic in nature, which is why you could see that for the longest time, the colonial government had a very hands-off attitude as to how land would be developed in the new territories. That's why it's very informal in nature. They let the villagers decide how they want to use their land until, of course, the development of the new towns and, and so on. But you're right. The term new territories is a very colonial term because it is the newest acquisition of Hong Kong's land but British Hong Kong, but it is also, you could argue, the oldest uh, of Hong Kong in the sense that villagers and people have been living in these areas for centuries well before the British even arrived. So it's a bit ironic in this title. But I still use this title for my book because I like the poetic nature of it, which is not really, really referring to the whole new territories as it is about asking what are new ways to think about territory not just as a physical boundary between Shenzhen and Hong Kong, but as other forms of separation between rural and urban, informal and formal, reality and imagination, past and future, and so on. But someone then, a villager, told me, actually, Justin, you're, you're not exactly right, because it's not that the new territories is the oldest part of Hong Kong, which is something that we can we tend to assume it's just that because the British have developed Hong Kong Island so much and Kowloon so much to the point that most of the history on the southern side have been wiped out. Most of the Chinese history perhaps have been wiped out due to colonial development. And it just happened that because there was always fewer development in the north, that's why you tend to find more Chinese history or other histories up in the north until now, which I think is going to change because now that the Northern metropolis is happening and there's a lot of new developing, happening, development happening in the North, we might actually be seeing the erosion of a lot of these old buildings and histories. Is that one of the reasons why I started this project? It started more with a fascination, perhaps as an American, why Hong Kong land is so expensive. And, you know, the notion that Hong Kong lacks land to develop on is a complete myth. But this is actually something that a lot of people around the world may not realize because of, again, of the images that we see, which is only mostly, you know, density and urban skyscrapers. So it was more about uh, interest in land use and understanding, okay, beyond the images that we're used to seeing about Hong Kong, what are other kinds of spaces I I could try to capture and, and understand better? And then I started going up north a lot every weekend, but then starting to realize that there were also a lot of villages being demolished as we speak. Actually, it happens every week. It's happening so much, but not at that time, not many people were that aware of it to make way for new development. So then you started to realize that this was a place that was changing very quickly. A lot of the issues that happened in Hong Kong Island 
during the protests, um, Kowloon, I think that it's not that these issues are now no, resolved or gone. It's just that it will now gravitate towards the new territories, the northern new territories that sits between mainland China and Hong Kong. As Hong Kong is incorporated closer into the mainland through infrastructural development yeah, and urban development, you're going to see a lot of these tensions, I think, arise in the north where it's changing very quickly. So what started as an investigation more into these into the north really then boiled into a project that not just looked into the changing landscape of what was happening, but then questioning what is the meaning of boundary and territory and what is the meaning of home? What is the meaning of land in the city that's just changing so quickly? And so these images that you see in the photo book really is not documenting what's actually happening as it is more about asking questions about the nature of Hong Kong, the nature of territory, because I think the, a lot of these questions that form Hong Kong identity is still very much unanswered, or it's, it's a very complicated issue that we are still grasping. The new territories used to be very remote and quiet area with small villages, but in the last few decades that has changed. And some areas now are highly populated because of the increase of trade with China. And this area is just a few minutes away from the Chinese border crossing, which I think will probably disappear in the next few decades. So this area that is close to the Chinese border is the area of your project. Yeah, the, to put it quite simply for people who are not in Hong Kong, it's you could argue that the development in the North is a way to integrate, turn Hong Kong and Shenzhen into one larger metropolis, as well as the Greater Bay Area, which is a series of other cities that are around the Bay Area here. Which makes sense from a Chinese perspective. You know, you have these seven major cities that are in, in the same area, and it would, their idea to turn that into this major metropolis, and the northern metropolis being just one small piece of this larger urban strategy that they have in mind. But you're right. I think in fifty or even a hundred years from now, I think that border could become like a Berlin, where that trace of what used to be two cities, that trace of the wall will not be very clear anymore. And then you'll still see traces and differences between the two cities, but it will be harder to find, right? I think and I predict that the removal of the border will happen not too far in the distant future, because if you live on either side of the border, you can see each other, basically. The residential areas are that close to each other. There is a border, but it's so easy to cross that I sometimes think why there is one in the first place. Indeed, it's almost, yeah, like, you know, now that Hong Kong is part of China, there's, then you ask yourself, why is there even a border? And you could argue, well, there's one country, two systems, and, and so on. But as that is changing as well, then the border as a physical separation is perhaps the last part of, of how you would define a territory as there are also many other forms of connections or relationships that happen across the border that are not necessarily physical but defines the dynamics that happen there and that's why i'm interested in separation in in my book not as just a physical border separation between two places as it is more about like other forms of negotiations that are happening that is driving the change in the landscape, not just this simple wall that, that borders Shenzhen and Hong Kong.
I remember when I arrived in Hong Kong about 20 years ago, we all made some kind of prediction about the future of Hong Kong. And I remember at the time, because I've repeated this a few times, that Hong Kong would become the kind of Monaco or the Monte Carlo of China where property prices are high because of its mountainous landscape. But Hong Kong is a really small city and that makes it really convenient, safe with a semi-subtropical climate and with a low tax system. We, of course, don't know what will happen with Hong Kong, but what do you think will happen with Hong Kong. When you say Monte Carlo, I mean, obviously being a very rich city, like, are you talking like a Monaco where... Yes, exactly. I talk about Monaco where there is a lot of wealth with those who can afford it and probably an older generation as well that's retired living along the coastal line. So if you have the financial means, you'll retire in Hong Kong, but if you are young and talented and look for the best jobs in innovation, you'll probably go to Shanghai, Guangzhou, or Beijing. Yeah, so are you saying it's just going to be a paradise for wealthy people? Exactly. <laughs> you could argue it's kind of like that in many ways already. That, But I think it will really depend on whether Hong Kong is still in some way separate from the rest of the mainland China. Not politically, but just in terms of the system. So yeah, no sales tax, low income tax, these things will keep Hong Kong. If that is the case and mainland China continues to have high tax rates and, and different legal systems, then for sure, I think Hong Kong will always remain by its uniqueness. China needs Hong Kong as a way to interface with the world. Hong Kong has historically been a bridge to connect China with the rest of the world. But if Hong Kong uniqueness is eroded and becomes more like any mainland city, then I don't know if that Hong Kong will retain its advantage being disconnected to the rest of the world. But right now, I think it's still the closest city to the West. I mean, out of all the cities in China, right? And and it does has it has its usefulness as a as a gateway to the rest of the world, as long as it's re it retains its difference, which I'm not too confident it will. That depends a lot on what happens, I think, in the next few years. Maybe we should meet again in maybe 10, 15 years to discuss how our predictions have turned out. What's really intriguing about the city is that you do have an integration of cultures and cuisines and habits. You can have, for example, cornflakes, which is a Western breakfast, or macaroni soup for breakfast, and nobody will find that strange in the city. Whereas you would do this in Europe or US, people may find that a little bit odd. I, I don't think too much about this, but maybe I'll throw a, a devil's advocate and, and maybe argue, do you think East meets West is too simplified? That it could actually separate, like, you know, with British colonialism in Hong Kong, the British and the Chinese were always separate, right? You were always going to be a second-class citizen if you were Chinese in British Hong Kong. And therefore, this construct of East meets West, as romantic as it sounds, is also a way to separate the two worlds. When in reality, say macaroni 
which is a very typical Tatan Tang food. Yes, it comes from the West, perhaps, but I'm just throwing out ideas, right? I'm just trying to see and ask if, yeah, there is a very clear separation, I think, between East and West, but I think Hong Kong's identity, because it's already so colonial in nature, what is East and what's West, what is Chinese and what is British, perhaps isn't very obvious and clear. And I mean, if you look at Shanghai, people have been wearing suits for a long time, but does that make it Western or is it just then appropriated as a Chinese thing? Or I don't know. I just find it very interesting because you see this contradiction of identity or nuance as elsewhere in Africa as well. That's a really good argument because cultural appropriation, of course, does happen everywhere. However, I do believe there is a difference where I see and feel that Western habits are more integrated here in Asia than Asian culture is in the West. If we go beyond food and when we look at education, it is very common in Asia to send your kids to an overseas university somewhere in Europe or US or Australia. But I don't know that many parents in US or Europe who will send their kids to an Asian university. I would say that Asian countries have a better understanding of Western cultures than vice versa. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, now that I, I'm, I'm back in the US and rediscovering all the assumptions and issues, you know, it's it's definitely very much the case. You know, if you, that the understanding of Asia and China, especially in the US, I think it's very weak. I, and I get it because, you know, not many Americans go to China or have a good grasp of Chinese history, including myself, I think, you know. But I think it's also because American soft power, right? Media is just so much more, you know, a lot of Chinese people have seen a lot of American TV shows, but how many Americans have seen Chinese shows, right? And being able to bridge that culture. Right? I think that's a, a challenge that China has always had, which is they're not very good at exporting their their soft power, their their media to places like the US, where then Americans can then understand China better. Let's talk about Africa again. Do you believe that something similar will or is happening to Africa? Because you see people from the African continent living and studying like Asian people all over the planet as well. It's amazing when you're in places like Tanzania, how much people there are familiar with Chinese shows. So they see a lot of Kung Fu films, martial arts, you know. Yeah, stereotypical, but still you can see a lot of Africans want to learn Chinese. They see that as a, an opportunity to trade, to do business with the Chinese. So they get a lot of ideas and influences from China now. Um, CCTV is everywhere, dubbed into Swahili or whatever local language. And you can really see that, you know, people argue, okay, ask me, you know, is it colonialism, right? This is like the number, number one question I always get asked. To me, it's less interesting, but then you always have to ask, what is colonialism? So the first one, you know, perhaps it's physical coercion. You take over another country and colonialize it. The second one is economic dependency. You make a country economically dependent on you as a way to control another country. And then the third one is, to me, the most interesting one, which is ideological influence, media, soft power, being able to convince someone why your country is better than another country. And I think America is very good at this, which is why they've been able to really 
control a lot of the narratives about the world. But then you see that China is trying to challenge that, especially in Africa, saying, you know, we're the better alternative. You know, we're not your, we're not like your Western colonializers in the past. We are here to do business with you. And we're not here to force you to do anything, but we're, we want to trade with you, right? That's their narrative. And, but that you could argue is also in a way, a way to provide an alternative narrative to the American narrative, to the Western narrative that has, that they've been, you know, exporting for the longest time. So you're right. I mean, I think it's the competition of ideology that we're seeing emerge kind of similar to the cold war with China and the U S being the main competitors in Southeast Asia that has been colonized by almost every European place. You do see remnants of this in Southeast Asian language, food and its architecture. Is this something you have observed in Tanzania as well? Yes. I don't know Southeast Asia too well at, at all. I, it's not where I go a lot, so I can't really say if it's similar or not, but I mean, we also remember during the Cold War, there was this competition between the Soviet Union and the U.S. in almost every part of the world. So even in Africa, you had the Soviets and influenced countries, and then you had the Americans vying for influence as well. So yeah, it, it's not just colonialism, which is you know when the West colonized all of Africa, but it was then the post-independence of many countries and then the vying for ideological dominance between Soviet Union and U.S. And then following the collapse of the Soviet Union, I think now it's like the Chinese are providing an alternative to what otherwise they would get from the, uh, the, from the West. The reshaping of the world order, perhaps. The dominance of a single ideology from the U.S. that, of course, sooner or later will be challenged and it's probably already being challenged i think is healthy because it is good at least from my personal point of view to have choice between multiple worldviews and i think that's a good thing and one of the takeaways if you're asking in your original question that came from my time in africa is how do you deal with this china's influence in africa my argument would be that actually what a lot of these African countries need is not less investment, it's actually more foreign investment, more competition between, so that you're not just reliant on Chinese projects or funding. You can get the best deal by having more players to choose from. So I think Africa could benefit more from globalization and that is the best way to counteract from being colonialized economically or ideologically is to have many people, many countries, many groups compete to give you the best option. And so a global Africa is, a, is good for the world because it also benefits from global competition and that they, get, and they can choose the best offer from, yeah, from not just the Chinese, but from other players. There was another project you did at the Architecture Beniala. Do you mind speaking about this? Which work was on display? That was, yeah, so there was an Architecture Biennale this year. It's happening still right now. And uh, there's a strong focus actually on Africa. And the Hong Kong Pavilion, which, so this is the Architecture Pavilion, uh, Biennale. So it's different than the art one where there's a focus on architecture, but also any issue relating to the built environment. So actually you if you have you did you go this year or you'll see a lot of projects that are not really focused on 
architecture as we understand it, but could relate to the built environment or to cities. So it's very interesting in that sense. Since I was invited to participate in the Hong Kong Pavilion with a group of other architects, I thought it would be very interesting. And with the Biennale's theme about Africa to combine two of my projects together. So the project about the new territories, which relates to Hong Kong, and then the urban Africa made in China, which relates to Africa. So they gave me a folding screen, like yet two screens, so that I thought it was a good opportunity to create relationships between images from what the, from these two projects. And by putting them together like diptychs, creating new relationships and ideas from putting them together. And so it's no longer a project just about Africa or Hong Kong, but it's really asking or revealing broader ideas about changing landscapes from one place to the next. Uh, what does home mean? What is territory? So boundary, right, is no longer just a boundary between Shenzhen and Hong Kong. It could also be the boundary between the Chinese and Africans on a construction site in Zambia, or it could be, and, and also the nature. I'm, I'm very interested in not just the changing landscape, of the built environment, but also how we relate and connect to architecture and, and spaces from a memory point of view, from an identity point of view. So really, it's not really the literal landscape that I'm interested in as it is about what these landscapes through images or through writing tell us about home and land and other themes that I look at in this project. Yeah. So far, we have spoken about photography, which is your primary domain, although you work with video as well. But are you exploring new areas beyond photography as well? For sure. Actually, I think the more I'm doing art, the less interested I'm in photography, especially with the photo book, which is also a medium, if you think about it that way. It's almost as if I, I feel like sometimes photography tells you too much. It's too descriptive. Well, depending on what you shoot and how you shoot. But in a way, I use the photo book as a medium to limit how much I could tell you about something. As, and these images then functioning less as descriptive images and more as ways to allow you to imagine what home is or what is actually happening or what was erased before. So for example, in the sequencing of this photo book, I show you a trace of a home rather than the actual home that was demolished as a way to allow you to imagine what used to be there. I think art can really use the power of imagination to tell your narrative and photography sometimes can do the opposite by telling you too much. And so, especially in Searching for Poon, my latest project, actually in New Territories, I was already starting to embrace other forms. I mean, it's still photography, but I would start using found objects collected from the rubble of demolished villages. And then I would photograph them away from the context in which I found them. But by doing so, these images, even though it's still a photograph, become more like words that allow viewers to ask other questions or to imagine the narratives that come from the object that I, I found. And then in searching for Poon, photography is only a small part of what I'm working with. You could argue that the zine, the photo book, the writings, the found documents that my grandmother left behind, the photographs that she took, they all play as equal part in the storytelling as is my photographs of the present day Hong Kong. So maybe one day I won't even use photographs perhaps, but I still think 
you're right. Photography is still a very important medium, but I think especially in this world where everyone is a photographer, everyone can take photos using an iPhone, and now we have AI producing images for us, this is really actually encouraging us to pursue other ways of telling stories that are less reliant on the visual image, which can be generated by AI or by anyone, and to encourage means and methodologies that could be more powerful or more effective in, in telling stories. I think we are too over-reliant on the image that it becomes a bit tyrannical in shaping how we see things around the world, especially with social media and storytelling now. I mean, I'm sure news and journalism rely so much on images just because we visual images become a very dominant way of, of communication more than sometimes text to the point where it can be very dangerous if we over rely on it or, or not question how we communicate and re and consume this form of language. That's a really novel viewpoint, how the introduction of AI and machine learning pushes us to rethink the role of imagery, which reminds me of a recent presentation I gave about the impact of photography on art and how the introduction of this forced artists at the time to rethink what art was. Because if photography could portray our environment way more accurately than paintings, what then was the role of paintings, landscapes, still lives, and portraits? So I see a parallel with the invention of photography and the introduction of AI and machine learning in today's environment, there is a similar discourse happening right now. I think you could argue that, and I'm sure a lot of people would say the same before, is that the invention of the camera disrupted painting, but also ushered in modern art in the sense that, you know, you didn't have to paint realistically anymore. Now you would explore other ways of painting, you know, like Picasso exploring the abstract, you know, it, it ushered a lot of abstract painting styles. I'm not a painter, so I, I'm probably <laughs> singing wrong, but AI I think is doing the same to photography now, because if you no longer need a camera to generate images, then what is the function of a photographer? I would say that the repercussions of AI today is far greater than photography because it impacts all areas of society, whereas the introduction or invention of photography about 150 years ago impacted mostly painters. Indeed, it's not just images, but certainly maybe it's already happening now. I think newspapers or journalists will need to, on their image, like there needs to be a, some sign or, or statement saying that this image has not been altered by AI as a way to authenticate that this image is real, right? We're already seeing images that are being manufactured by AI. It's completely fake, but people think it might be a real news story. So I think we're going to see this need to separate images that are not altered by AI and images that are. I'm not sure how they'll do that, but I'm sure people are already talking about this. But to me, I don't think this is very interesting as an artist, because in my opinion, I think all images are already altered in some way. It just depends on how the photographer or the artist is viewing the subject and manipulating the viewer through the lens. So to me, I think all images are fake in the sense that we have perhaps become too reliant on images 
as a way of telling the truth, that we overlook other ways in which we can tell the truth. It's almost as if fiction becomes more becomes more of an effective way to tell the truth than actually images that are supposed to tell you what's actually happening. And I think that's why, as an artist, it's a very exciting time to live. As we see our transition into and then our embrace of AI, that is going to usher in new ways to tell stories that are not reliant on images. My father is a retired photographer, and he just stopped working before the digital camera came out. With the event of AI and machine learning, will there be a need for camera at all? But a more interesting conversation I had recently was how different it is today compared with several hundred years ago. Before the camera, we had to figure out basically what was true or not true without access to the internet or even a book or encyclopedia. Now we can basically fact check things instantly. So to your point, maybe we have become too reliant or over-reliant on media in terms of what we see and hear. And we need to start questioning more what reality or truth exactly is. Mm. Yeah. And that's the biggest danger of news. As important as journalism is, it's such a powerful weapon. I mean, the images to me more dangerous than actual military weapons because they actually control how you see the world, especially with algorithms and social media. And even more so now with AI, that that's why I am perhaps, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if I wasn't taking photos anymore in a few years time from now. But for example, like in searching for Poon, if memories are always constructed and you can never really see the real memory, then in that sense, my photos, there's no obligation for me to, to make sure that the images are actually real. To me, the border between fiction and reality is not very important because I think fiction can tell stories that are closer to the truth than someone being misled by what they think is real. But the reason why you make art, I think, is not about finding truth. I'm still figuring this out, but I'm not trying to say that because everything is constructed that nothing is true. You can't say nothing happened in Tiananmen, for example, <laughs> as one example, that my grandmother left behind photographs, which are true. They are the objective reality of what she's left behind. But then how we understand these artifacts and how we perceive them and understand our histories, that part is always being rewritten by the successors, right? So I think it's a project that talks about the relationship between memory and reality. But in the end, I'm still figuring out the narrative, but perhaps what I'm saying is that the act of searching and remembering matters more in the end, right? Your love for someone matters more than whether that memory was exactly the way it was or close to the truth. What's so fascinating about arts, but also other domains, is that when I look at your work today, I will have a different association than someone in Africa who will look at the same work as me. And very likely in 10 years' time, it will be different again. So it's a very dynamic interplay between your work, audience, environment, and time. That's the beauty of art is that that's why in this photo book or in any project, maybe I try not to write too much because I think 
there is a beauty in, in allowing people to develop their own associations with the images that I create. And that I'm not trying to tell you what to think, to tell you how I, I mean, certainly it's going to be shaped by how I see the world, but I'm not, my goal is not to convince you why I'm right or, or this is the way I see things, that there is a spectrum of interpretation behind any work. And those are the projects that I find more interesting is when you have a lot of different kinds of conversations coming out of one piece of work because it's not that simple in terms of its narrative. That's what I fear about, like, I know I criticize journalism a lot, but I feel like it's just because of the speed in which we're reporting or consuming news, it's overly simplified. Like the function of an image in the news perhaps is to traditionally communicate directly what is happening on the ground. But that what that means is that it's very literal. That the function of an image is to tell you exactly what's happening. Therefore, there is no depth further ambiguity behind the image. It's explaining what it's trying to do. And therefore developing an actual inherent visual language that is dominant in the way we communicate nowadays. Uh, you can really tell that even with China Africa, when the news talk about China Africa, there are certain visual tropes that appear again and again. And this is true for China's Chinese government or any topic. It's easy to just use the typical Chinese soldier, right, standing in front of the building to communicate what is the CCP and so on, even though it has nothing to do with the topic. But it's just because it's the easiest way to communicate to a aud particular audience about something. And I think that's the danger of images. And so I also try then to really avoid those tropes and to really explore my the nuances that you can find in images. So I sometimes love images that are just not obvious or, or very difficult to understand because they do tell you, once you dive deeper into them, they give you other perspectives and interpretations. And so, yes, I try not to dictate too much on what I'm trying to tell you. Let's delve into the last supper question that I ask every guest, including yourself. So if you were to have your last supper, who would you invite other than, of course, your family? And what would you discuss during your last meal? Gosh, that's a, I would think if it's the last supper, you would have to think about your afterlife. So some artist that works with that. I mean, I was just in a show by Tai Guo Chang in Tokyo. He has a, it's an amazing show, love his work. But the one thing that I, I've been to his other shows before, but the one thing that really stuck out to me this time is his, his, he really looks at time and he's obsessed with like aliens, extraterrestrials. All of his projects are basically designed for these aliens who are looking at us. And there's a very grand, broad, perspective on humanity that you can see in his projects that span thousands of years and um, is not pertaining to one identity or country. For example, like you know, a lot of art, you could say a lot of art in Hong Kong pertains to Hong Kong as an identity as a home. To me, when I look at his work, yes, of course he draws inspiration from Chinese history and you know fireworks, but I wouldn't say that it's really that the audience is not Chinese. It's, I mean, it's not even humans. It's like broader in perspective. And I think I would love to have a supper with him if that's the case, you know, talk about these things. It's a question I have, maybe I should think a lot about. I haven't really thought though. <laughs> it's a, yeah, something that relates to the, uh, 
to your transition to the next world, which is a boundary I'm also exploring a lot. So my grandmother who, so a big theme in this work is that my, is, is about crossing boundaries. So in a way similar to new territories in the sense that she, when she was young, she crossed from mainland China into Hong Kong. But then I see that, you know, as we all will pass away when she passes away, it's almost like crossing into another world. You're crossing another boundary. So crossing from life to death or from, from life to another world is, is no, not that different than crossing, say from mainland China into Hong Kong. It's just, you're just crossing another form of a border, which yeah. So any, any kind of artist that deals with that could be very interesting too, but. That was a great conversation and many thanks, Justin, for coming over. Have a safe trip back to New York and I hope to see you next time when you're back in Hong Kong. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Last Supper with artist Justin Hui. If you like this show about art in Asia, you can support us by giving this episode a star rating and subscribing to this podcast. If you have any questions, suggestions, or wish to participate in this podcast, you can contact me on oscar at thelastsopper.asia. You can visit my website www.thelastsopper.asia as well, or contact me direct on Instagram at thelastsopper.asia.